Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The American side held, you know, limited opportunities for these folks. If they were not going to fight for the Americans, they were going to stay a slave. And if their owners were not going to let them go, what opportunity did they have except to go find some redcoats somewhere, offer themselves to them, and then pray to God that the British won the war? That's author Todd Braisted speaking on his new article discussing the role of enslaved African Americans fighting for the British cause. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of the new book, Cabal, The Plot Against General Washington, by Mark Edward Lender. Available now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're talking with a longtime friend of the Journal of the American Revolution, a person who, if you've been on the American Revolution lecture circuit uh, over the last few years, you've probably seen Mr. Todd Braisted. Uh, Todd is a really, really great historian when it comes to the big picture. And what I mean about that is he understands the value that history can play and historians can play uh, in understanding our nation's past. He recently published an article that was, like any good article, uh, part narrative and part detective work, about African Americans, both free and enslaved, who served for the British in the American Revolution. He talked about the roles that African Americans played, most notably that of spy, intelligence gathering, and scout. And he proved that not all good historical articles, but some of the best historical articles require, again, a bit of detective work. Todd Braisted did not write an article to, um, to you know, rewrite the history of uh, John Graves Simcoe or George Washington, any of these big sort of huge names from the revolution. Uh, but he spent a great deal of time, as we'll talk about today, digging in archives, reading and researching uh, about a man whose last name wasn't even recorded most of the time, um, about a man they called Trumpeter Barney. He was a person of color. He was a scout for the, Ameri- uh, for the British cause in the American Revolution. And unlike almost any other African-American who served for the British Army, uh, his information was recorded. He was given his just desserts after the war by recommendation and commendation by his commanding officer. Now, this is such an important article and such an important discussion. As I said, not because it rewrites the history of the revolution. I mean, in the end, this is one scout who was part of one very small component of the, of the British cause. But this is an individual who was, until Todd Braisted came along essentially lost to history, written out of history altogether. Uh, And he was one of the few that 
uh, actually had some written record there. Now, the value of, of Todd's article is that, yes, you see the life of this individual and you see the service of this individual, but you know that for every one trumpeter Barney, uh, there were hundreds of African Americans serving in the war that did not receive the same accolades or even any credit at all whatsoever. And it gets to one of the real troubling aspects of history. Like I said, history is not always about detective work, but sometimes it really is. And you see that, in a way, history can be uh, a way to right wrongs, if you would. Um, you're not going to see, you know, history textbooks for undergraduates and high schools rewritten because of Todd's work. Not because it doesn't have merit. It has tremendous merit. And in my opinion, is tremendously important and illustrative for any would-be historians listening or anyone interested in getting into history. But it goes to show that you don't always need to study the gigantic, enormously important characters to move mountains in the field. Todd Braestead's work, as we'll discuss today, is a very good example of what a dedicated historian uh, and a careful commander 250 years ago could do working together across the span of time. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with author and historian Todd Braisted. Todd Braisted, welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Tell us, if you would, a little bit about your background. I've been a primary researcher of the American Revolution since 1979. In fact, I date it back to June of 79 when I was between my freshman and sophomore high school grades, which I imagine is when most primary researchers start going through manuscripts. Um, and I recognized there was a need for loyalist uh, material because there weren't a whole lot of loyalist scholars back in the bicentennial. Not that I considered myself a high school scholar by any chance, but it was kind of a, an interesting field. I, I, I know I read somewhere that it said uh, loyalist studies need more people involved. And I took that as a sign to get involved. And meeting up with the likes of Don Hagist and other up-and-comers, it became a very, very fun journey, which led to numerous articles and books and organizations and whatnot. And, and of course, Journal of the American Revolution is where we are now. It's a... It's a great format, a great uh, venue uh, to be seen by so many people. What first drew your interest into this topic? Black Loyalist Studies is something that I sort of picked up along the way. It became uh, more of a focus in the late 90s when the University of Michigan recommended me to a book on Black Loyalists um, called uh, Moving On, Black Loyalists in the Afro-Atlantic World. And they asked me to write the, the first chapter for it. So that was, that was my first time uh, being published in a book. And it was kind of cool. But it really, it really led me into researching that group of people more and their military contributions. So I had a, a pretty good base coat of material uh, in different manuscripts from around the world uh, from which to draw from. And, of course, February being Black History Month, uh, I was looking for something that might be... Um, suitable for JAR uh, to mark the occasion. Your article focuses on the Queen's Rangers. Uh, what can you tell us about them? The Queen's Rangers was one of the first provincial regiments raised during the New York City campaign. 
Now, what's a provincial regiment? A provincial regiment is a regiment raised by the British uh, for their service, consisting primarily of loyalists. Uh, they're sort of the equivalent of the Continental Army. They're not regular British soldiers, but they're not militia. They're soldiers who are serving for the duration of the war. They're going to be regularly armed, paid, fed, uniformed, disciplined um, by the British as standing soldiers. The Queen's Rangers uh, was originally raised and commanded by the famous Robert Rogers. Right? If anybody has seen the AMC TV series uh, Turn, um, you're familiar with Robert Rogers. Well, he raised the Queen's Rangers in August of 1776, and eventually they went on to serve under various other officers um, that we'll talk about in a little while, I, I, I'm hoping, and they served with distinction during the Philadelphia campaign, the New Jersey campaign, the Battle of Monmouth, um, during the Siege of Charleston, the expeditions down to Virginia under Benedict Arnold, and eventually uh, surrendered at Yorktown as part of Cornwallis's army. But they were not just an infantry regiment, but an infantry and cavalry regiment. Technically, those are known as legions. Um, so they were all considered as light infantry or light dragoons and very, uh, very elite soldiers, grenadiers, light infantry, riflemen, some artillery, cavalry, highlanders, uh, you name it. They were, they were in the regiment. So it, uh, it really became a very uh, distinct group. In 1779, they were actually renumbered as the first American regiment. And on Christmas Day, 1782, they were made a regular regiment of the British Army, which was quite a uh, quite a distinction, quite an honor uh, in reference to their services. Your article explains in, in pretty good detail uh, in 1777 that the Queen's Rangers go through a, a pretty major change in leadership. What was that change? Robert Rogers is best known for his role in the French and Indian War. As a, as a ranger officer, a light infantry officer, um, working against the French and their Indian allies. By the time of the American Revolution, he had, the interwar years had really been a, a strained relationship between Rogers and the British. And they weren't on the best of terms. In fact, they weren't, no one was even sure what side Rogers was going to serve on. And he had raised for his corps a number of officers who the British did not particularly care for. They were of the lower sorts. In fact, they, they declared one even ran a bawdy house in New York City. You can uh, let folks determine that, uh, what they will. And some of their men were, uh, a lot of men were prisoners of war or deserters. Um, they weren't of the best sort, and the British did not really care for that. They wanted the provincial forces to be men of the best character, the officers to be pure gentlemen, uh, such as British officers might be. So there was a really strained relationship with Rogers and the British. So the British decided they wanted to rid themselves of Rogers and his officers. They wanted to keep the men, of course. They wanted to keep the regiment, but they wanted it under better leadership. So they created the post of Inspector General of Provincial Forces, a guy named Alexander Ennis from South Carolina. And he immediately uh, booted Robert Rogers and they got rid of 30 out of 35 officers under Rogers, summarily dismissed them without trial. That led to lawsuits after the war, which we're not going to go into now, 
but a, quite a little situation. So they were replaced by a number of gentlemen and a succession of regular British Army commanding officers, Christopher French, um, James Weenus, uh, and eventually a gentleman that is probably familiar to many people, John Graves Simcoe. Simcoe takes command in October 1777. Simcoe is a captain in the British 40th Regiment of Foot, and he is a young up-and-comer in the British Army. People like him, Francis Lord Rawdon, Bannister Tarleton, are of a... Uh, they're all 20-somethings. They're all eager for promotion. They're all eager to command units, and they can't do that in the British Army because they're too young in rank. So they take provincial commissions, and boom, the British promote them from captain up to lieutenant colonel so they can command an entire regiment. And from that point on, Simcoe molds the regiment in his image, and it's the core for the rest of the war. It directly reflects the, the boldness, the intrepidity, and the character of Simcoe, who, despite what you may have seen on turn, did not actually drip blood. We've seen over the last, especially 10 years or so, the role that enslaved peoples played in the American Revolution in a way that really hadn't been studied for over two centuries. So uh, how did the British utilize enslaved peoples during the Revolution? Well, one of the things that Innes brought to the table as Inspector General of Provincial Forces was somewhat of a bias uh, against African Americans. He had seen that in many of the ranks, including the Queen's Rangers, there were black soldiers, and he did not care for that. So he and Sir William Howe, the British commander-in-chief at the time, determined that any blacks then serving as private soldiers should be discharged, dismissed, and that none in future should be enlisted. There were loopholes, however, in the provincial forces. They could serve as pioneers, uh, unarmed laborers. They could serve as musicians, drummers, fifers, trumpeters. They could serve in what was known as the civil branches of the army, the support elements, the commissary general's department, the quartermaster general's department, all the support services that did, did a lot of the logistical work for the army. Uh, they could serve in the Royal Navy. They could serve on privateers. They could serve in refugee corps, loyalist units that were not provincial units. They were something else and that did not fall under the, the inspector general's purview and were perfectly fine in there. So by the thousands, they did serve with the British, but not perhaps as many people think of them as soldiers on the ranks. Your article is something of a detective story. Uh, introduce some of the enslaved and African-American men that you discovered and, and really what was so unique about them. Sure. Um, interestingly, it comes down to some of the correspondence of Simcoe to his buddy, John Andre. Uh, again, a name familiar to, to probably many folks out there, the adjutant general of the British Army at the time in 1780. And Simcoe mentions that amongst the prisoners the Queen's Rangers have taken, during the siege of Charleston, and I'm sure this was a, uh, a difficult conquest for them, were four boys uh, who were dressed in musicians' uniforms for a Continental Artillery Unit, the, the South Carolina Artillery, that, that Continental Regiment. And so he claimed them as um, trophies of war, as it were. In 1779, the British had actually declared that any blacks captured bearing arms against them would be sold. 
vice um, vice versa, though, if any blacks had come from the rebel territory to the British voluntarily, the British would emancipate them. They would declare them free, and no one could claim them. Now, this didn't hold true for loyalists, of course. Any loyalist holding a slave was fine by the British. This only pertained to rebels. While these four African Americans in continental artillery uniforms were deemed to be rebels, so Simcoe just took them and claimed them. He said they were tailors and musicians, and he wanted to um, utilize them for the Queen's Rangers as musicians. Uh, amongst them was uh, a guy named Andrew Ellis, uh, Andrew Ellis, and another uh, by the name of Barney, another by the name of Samson, um, and uh, they start to show up on the rolls of the Queen's Rangers. Samson is listed as a quote clarinet in the Highland Company of the Queen's Rangers. That must have been interesting. Um, Ellis uh, ends up as a drummer in Captain Stair Agnew's company of the Queen's Rangers. And this Barney ends up as a trumpeter in a new troop of cavalry being raised by the Rangers under Captain David Shanks of Virginia. Who was Trumpeter Barney, and why is he so important to your article? That's, that's really the gist of the article. Um, you see a name on a muster roll, and if people are unfamiliar, a muster roll is simply a document used for the purpose of paying troops. In the provincial forces, it covered 61 days. Right? So you're, you're one of these things out every two months. You listed every man serving in each company, and that would be used to pay the soldiers. Right? Inspector General or the muster master general would walk down the ranks and just check off that everybody was there. If they weren't there, they had to account for where they were. So you see hundreds of thousands of names on muster rolls, and we know so precious little uh, about the lives of most of these individuals. You know, they, there's not a great paper trail for rank-and-file soldiers of, of, of any side during the war. Sometimes the officers, but not the enlisted men, and even less of the musicians who tended to be young. So you see a name, Trumpeter Barney, and you, know, you, you figure you're never going to learn anything more about him. So all of a sudden, you read in Simcoe's military journal, which he published in the late 1780s, and Simcoe writes about Trumpeter Barney. He mentions um, this young African-American trumpeter engaged in battle at Spencer's Ordinary on June 26, 1781, in an action uh, against mostly the Continental Light Infantry and troops sent by the Marquis de Lafayette to attack what was the British rear guard when Cornwallis moved his troops um, over to uh, Williamsburg. And it's incredible that Barney is acting the role of a real soldier. And a trumpeter is used, as you could probably figure out, to, to signal commands. That's what the purpose of having musicians in a military unit is about. Uh, they, you don't have walkie-talkies uh, or radios or anything like that. And to be heard from one end of the field to the other, you need music calls, drum, fife, trumpet things that can be heard above musketry and artillery fire. So a trumpeter is, is an important position. In fact, they get paid more than a regular private soldier does. And he's armed with a sword and probably a couple pistols as well for his own self-defense. The only thing he's not carrying is probably a carbine. So 
army is is leading the rebel cavalry away from the Queen's Rangers until they have a chance to mount up and launch their own attack. He saves the life of his captain, Captain Shank. He dismounts and captures a French officer serving with the American cavalry. And eventually he ends up getting wounded in the battle. And Simcoe writes about all this. And it's incredible. So I'm like, wow, this guy, this guy has a story to tell. I, I, I want to know more about him. Could you talk about some of the methods you used to, to find him in the annals of history? Well, here's, here's the fun part. I'd love to claim that it was incredible expert sleuthing. You know, years of, of work and training went into finally discovering who all this was and, and where it was. That would be a huge monumental lie. I was just going through a collection that is in the National Archives at Kew in England looking for somebody else in a collection um, known as War Office 121, which are some of the papers of the Chelsea uh, Admissions Board. And Chelsea is the pensioners' uh, hospital in London where wounded and disabled and old British soldiers can get a pension for their services. And in looking for somebody else, I just happened to click on a page, and it was a letter from John Graves Simcoe. And in it, he was uh, recommending to the Secretary of War, Trumpeter Barney, who is looking to get a pension. And Simcoe mentions that this is the person who served at Spencer's Ordinary and that he really deserves a pension. He came with him to England after uh, Yorktown in 1781 and is well-deserving. So I, I looked at that, and I'm like, okay, this, this should be in another record called War Office 116, which is a register of the Chelsea admissions, and I look in there, and there, right after Simcoe's letter, is a request from Bernard E. Griffiths, trumpeter, Queen's Rangers. Bernard E. Griffiths is trumpeter Barney. He actually has a real name at this point. It's not just Barney. So it, I'm like, wow, this this is incredible. You can put the muster rolls together. You can put Simcoe's journal together. You can put all the Chelsea records together. And through all that, you can you can come up with a story of one individual, one teenaged African-American whose service in the American Revolution was brave enough, outstanding enough to warrant that kind of commendation from his commanding officer, not just any commanding officer, Simcoe, one of the, the chosen officers of the British Army. So it was um, it was a real thrilling moment to come up with all that. And like I said, so much, so much of it was just by chance. Um, you, you, you can train all you want, but sometimes there's no substitute for dumb luck. What does your research reveal about the role of enslaved peoples during the revolution as a whole? Their motives are not entirely the same as everyone else's motives. You know, you talk about the American Revolution being a fight for freedom, and it's, but it's the freedom of a nation. For a lot of African Americans, it's for personal freedom. You know, if they had uh, come from a slave background, and, and to be fair, not every black in the service of the British had started out as a slave during the revolution. There were some 
free blacks who chose the British side. But for those who had been enslaved and had left their owners, left their masters, and gone to the British for protection to claim the benefits of Sir Henry Clinton's proclamation from 1779, and then put their lives on the line in some fashion, like Trumpeter Barney did, they were trying to evince that opportunity, trying to get their fight for personal freedom so they could be a free people. You know, it, the American side held you know, limited opportunities for these folks. If they were not going to fight for the Americans, they were going to stay a slave. And if their owners were not going to let them go, what opportunity did they have except to go find some redcoats somewhere, offer themselves to them, and then pray to God that the British won the war? You know, if they could help them do that and fight for their own personal freedom, then they become a free people. I, you know, that's an, an incredible incentive uh, to fight for. I mean, we can, you can fight for you know, economic reasons, you can fight for political reasons, but this was uh, you know, the, one of the most you know, fundamental reasons whatsoever, one of their own personal freedom. Million-dollar question, Todd. Uh, what are you working on next? Oh... Actually, we're working on many things, some of which we cannot talk about, but that's not a way to end this. Um, my next my next biggest thing right now is on women loyalist petitions uh, and need for government assistance from 1779 to 1783, primarily concentrating on New York and Charleston uh, because they're, they have the best sources for them. Uh, you know, March <laughs> Women's History Month, we moved into that. So that's the next area of study. And, you know, for the soldiers, it's one thing, but for the women they leave behind, it's it's another. You know, the women during the American Revolution, depending on what side you were on, had very, very different experiences. Most women whose husbands served on the Continental Army could sit comfortably at home because their areas were not battlegrounds, at least not for terribly long. But for loyalist women, um, if they were on property owned by their husband, uh, they were generally evicted by the states and made to seek refuge within the British. And then how do you earn your bread? How do you make a living? It's very difficult. So in their dealings with the British government, they're looking to, to make ends meet, literally. So And that will eventually be a, a chapter and a lecture in Philadelphia uh, this coming June. So very much looking forward to that. Todd Braisted, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.